it's a pleasure to be back. Uh, Teresa and I have been invisible for the last two weeks. Some of you may not have noticed. Uh, we'll talk later about that. Um, <laughs> we're deeply offended. No, I'm kidding, of course. We were in Florida for a week. A wonderful time to get away. Our, my in-laws, Teresa's parents, uh, spend the winter down there on the Gulf Coast, and they had an opportunity to bring us down for a week and occupied two Sundays. And so we were grateful to be able to take the time away and get there. And I want to tell you briefly before we get into uh, the message this morning, just about an experience that happened on the flight down there uh, that was actually very exhilarating and uh, a wonderful reminder of uh, not to complain too hard against the providence of God. Uh, on the flight down from Rochester to uh, the first airport, uh, Chicago, I think it was, O'Hare, right? Is that where we went? O'Hare. Um, because Teresa's dad had booked the tickets and the way all that worked out, many of you have experienced this, we couldn't get seats together. We had seats in the same, uh, we were a row apart, so I sat right in front of uh, Teresa uh, against the window. But that meant that someone that I didn't know and someone Teresa didn't know were going to be sitting in the seats next to us. Well, as it happens, um, a young man from Rochester uh, by the name of Ruvim, R-U-V-I-M, he's of uh, Lithuanian or Czechoslovakian descent, somewhere over there, he told me, um, was in the seat next to me. And Ruvim was on his way to one of the Carolinas to start as a manager in his brother-in-law's roofing business. So he was very excited about this. And we struck up a conversation. And uh, he was talking to me, and where are you from, and what are you doing, and where are you going, and likewise. And we were talking about what we do. And uh, he told me his job here and where he was going. And I told him, you know, I do stuff with computers. And for the, for the part-time, for the, the week, during the week, that's my full-time job. And I'm also involved in my church as one of the pastors there. And he got this, this little grin on his face, and he said, you look like a pastor kind of guy. And I, <laughs> now, I wasn't wearing my big pastor T-shirt, the big P. I didn't have my red cape on or anything like that. So I said, well, gee, I hope that's a good thing. And he said, yeah, it is. And then he leaned into me, got his arm on the armrest, and he said, can I ask you a personal question? I said, of course. I'm like, oh boy, here we go. What's it going to be? And he said, why do I keep doing all these bad things that I do? Man, here we are in this silver tube flying 200 miles an hour in the air, and I've got a captive audience. Remember Ruvim in seat 15C if you will, and don't neglect or shrug too hard at God's providence. We had a chance for 20 minutes or so. I don't know, Teresa was, was listening with as, as best and near as she could uh, with the plane. I got a chance to go over the gospel with him. And I don't know if I was the planter. I don't know if I was the waterer. I don't know if I was one of many waterers in his path. He had heard the gospel before. He was familiar with some of the terminology. In fact, he said he had had his eyes on a young Christian lady around Valentine's Day, but knew that he wouldn't be worthy of her if he didn't get his act cleaned up and start behaving better. So I got a chance to minister to him and explain to him why it was that he did all the bad stuff that he did and, and how the gospel of Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection will, will resolve that for him. And he got quiet after about 20 minutes. And part of that may have been the hangover that he had from his night of partying the night before. He said to me, you may notice that I'm a little bit... Uh, a little bit out of it. 
And I said, yeah, you kind of have that little look in your eye. And he had been out partying hard that night. So I don't know if it was that. I don't know if it was the spirit brooding on his heart. It doesn't matter. Said my piece, got the gospel to this young man. And, um, and then we parted ways. So if you remember in your prayers, pray for this young man, Reuven, that he would, he would find a, uh, another Christian to come along and continue that work, that the spirit would continue to work in him. And um, the next time you're on a flight and you don't get to sit next to your honey, um, don't, be, don't begrudge that opportunity too much because you never know if there's a Reuven sitting in the seat next to you. So by way of that introduction, that brings us into our text today. Uh, we're continuing in our, our series here in Colossians uh, chapter 1 and focusing really on verses 15 through 20, this, this dense, uh, tightly packed doxology that Paul lays out for us here um, to a church, writing to a group of Christians he had personally never met, but was bonded to through the love of Christ and through the work of Epaphras or Epaphroditus, having come to him and talked to him and telling him all that was going on there. And so uh, we have this letter. And if you remember from a couple of weeks ago, we had Pastor Ed give us the, the recap. He gave us a, a broad brush intro to this entire uh, chapter, uh, chapter 1 here, and laid that, out, laid that out for us and zeroing us in on this uh, particular passage that we're, that we're coming up to here, My, this being the first foray into, into these, uh, this paragraph. And... Um, then Ken mentioned how the body of Christ is bigger than just us and, and what it means to be able to pray for the spiritual blessings of others. Uh, thankfully, uh, the body of Christ is not just ECF. I'm so grateful for that. And uh, Ken was wonderful in drawing that out for us and helping us understand and remember to pray for the church at large, as, as Pastor Brian did for us this morning in our time of prayer. And uh, a reminder, again, that with the upcoming Franklin Graham Crusade, Rock the Lakes, that uh, we do not have an exclusive lock on the gospel and that there are other brothers and sisters in this area who are also contending for the faith that was delivered to them and we can lock arms with them and minister to those who need it as well. And then we heard from, again, Ed last week about the blessedness that is ours as believers who have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to God's heavenly kingdom of light and how that transference has been accomplished uh, through Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. And that brings us then into our main text for today, and that is verse 15 of chapter 1, and just that first phrase, that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Now I had read for us the previous two verses, verses 13 and 14, because, if you will, they are sort of the introduction or the lead-in to this next section, verses 15 through 20, where we read that he, that is being God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then says, now he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, so if you will, what's following in these uh, next several verses what we're going to be unfolding for us for the next couple of weeks is that explanation. If you were, you could almost put a colon at the end of verse 14. I know there's a period there that says, so these passages are explaining to us more about who this Jesus is in whom we have had redemption and forgiveness. We're going to get some characteristics of him. And that first... 
Paul wants us to know that he is the image of the invisible God. Now, let me... You can see my notes for today, my slides for today. I'm trying to... Uh, uh, object lesson here. Uh, pretend these are my invisible uh, notes, outline notes for you all. And you can see how helpful they are. Right? You have to imagine what it is that I have on the page or what my next point is going to be or what it is that I've just said. It's not entirely helpful. But kids, I know many of you have had the thought that you would love to be invisible, right? Because think of all the wonderful things that you could do if you were invisible. would be nice. You wouldn't have to actually sneak around on the creaky stairs to hear your parents talking about what they are or maybe not getting you for your birthday or Christmas, right? You could just be standing right next to them and they'd never know because you're invisible. But what if your best friend were also invisible? Well, it'd be kind of hard to play catch, wouldn't it? Uh, tag seems nearly impossible if you're both invisible, unless one of you are wearing reflective tape or something like that and can be seen in the moonlight. How would you play? Where would you aim to shoot at the bad guy or the good guy in your group? You just wouldn't be able to do that. So while on the surface it might seem cool to be invisible, to a point it's not helpful. And us as humans, as created beings, we relate with the tangible and the visible around us. How many here have ever seen anything invisible? Good. No hands went up. Because <laughs> we have the guys in the white coats waiting in the hall, should a hand have gone up for that. If anybody had ever seen, how would you know if you'd seen anything invisible? You know, thoughts like what's going on in a man's mind. That's pretty invisible. Um, wind. Has anybody actually seen wind? Not really. Or heat. We see heat waves. Do you actually see heat that you feel? How about x-rays or emotions? We don't see these invisible things. What we actually see are their effects or their representations. We know that they are there because of the things that they leave behind or what they're doing. Classic example. We know that there is wind because we see the trees bending. We feel it in our hair or in our toes when we're uh, stretched out on the beach. We know that x-rays are present because when we look at that film, we see the bones, the image of the bones that have been left there. Why? Because the x-rays don't penetrate the bone. And so that gets exposed there. And so, <clears throat> or they do. And so we see the presence of x-rays because of the bone on the film. And we know that that's what's taking place, but you don't actually see them. And even in the Old Testament, God showed his presence uh, in various ways. If you recall that he was a smoky presence in Moses' tent and also in the tabernacle. He represented his presence by that pillar of fire and the cloud when he was walking the Israelites through the desert. There was boisterous activity at Mount Sinai, thunderings and lightnings and, and uh, earthquake-like activity that was taking place. And God performed miracles and other actions to let them know that he was there, that his presence was there. But really, except for, for Moses and the scene that we had read for us today in, in Exodus, God did not reveal himself 
really. He had his presence, and Moses got this glimpse of God that, that none of us have seen. And if you recall, that every time he met with God, his face would shine so bright that they actually had to cover it with a cloth until that, that radiance went away because God's presence was so firm. But, but they hadn't really seen God himself. And neither would they, uh, those people, just the effects of him. But those that would come later would get to see a visible representation of this God that they worshipped and had met them in the wilderness. We want to remember, too, that this is not the only place in our scripture where God is talked about as being invisible. Uh, we sang about it uh, first in the, the one hymn in that doxology from 1 Timothy 1.17. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And that verse, also, that hymn also talks at 1 Timothy 16, 15 through 16, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So it isn't only Paul's letter to Colossians where this thought of God being invisible has been captured or drummed home. And in fact, Jesus himself reminds us of this in John 5.37 when he says, And the Father who has sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, and his form you have never seen. Yet we had read for us out of John 14 that when Philip questions Jesus about showing the Father, Jesus says, Philip, I've been with you this all this time and you still ask, show me the Father? If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. And that's where we're going in this passage. So how and in what ways is Jesus the image of the invisible God? Well, some of them are brought to us in the, in the following verses here, in, starting in verse 15 and what follows, in this, this tightly dense doxology and rich theology that is so Paul that he packs so much in so few words that we could spend a very long time digging that and extracting that out. And we'll have a, a few, several weeks to, to be able to do this, but we'll, we'll be able to spend an eternity getting at all of this that's presented for us here. But I want to say that two passages, in, a, in addition to this one, kind of help us get at what it means that he's the image of the invisible God. And we had one of them read for us. It was Hebrews 1. But first, I want to take us to 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. And in their case, those who are not yet believers, the God of this world has blinded the minds of them, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So I think there's an inkling and a nugget there that it has something to do with the gospel and what it is that Christ came to do for us that gives us a sense of the image of God that he represents. But Hebrews 1, 1 through 3a, I think is eminently more helpful and insightful here. Let's read it again. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. 
But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And it's verse 3 that enlightens us. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The exact imprint of his nature. Note that phrase. It's really helpful in understanding our text today and where it is we're going. Note that he says he's not just a reflection. That he is an exact imprint. And a reflection, of course, are not substantive, right? You look in a mirror, you see light reflected, but it's not the thing itself. It's not substantive or tangible. You can't actually get your hands on a reflection. You just see it in a mirror or being reflected someplace else. While he is called the Son of God in other places, in reference to him being the image of God, note that he doesn't refer to him here as Christ being his progeny. Like our children, they bear aspects of us and they look similar to us. You know when the child is born, you say, oh, you have your mother's eyes or they have the father's nose uh, or, or mouth uh, or th- things like that. But it's a resemblance. It's not the same as. It's not necessarily your nature that's being represented there. And it's a commingling of, of the two parents as well. Jesus isn't a clone of God either. Um, he stands on his own. He, was, he is uniquely part of the Godhead, the eternal Son. So he is the Son, but he's not a clone. It's, it's not like God split off a part of himself and made him and made Jesus that way. Because again, the clone is not the same as the original. It's not, it will look like it, but it's different, stands on its own. The idea here really is that it's more like a mold. You've seen molds, you've, maybe you've been to uh, in the old days when they used to take a wax mold of the keys, right? You take the key and you imprint it on the wax and then you can look at that wax image and you can see exactly what that key or one side of that key used to look like, right? We do the same with, uh, in our industry in what's called an injection molding process, right? You'll create a hollow form of the thing that it is that you want to make, and then they inject uh, plastic in it, liquid plastic or uh, various things, styrofoam or something like that. And when you crack open the mold, you see the image of the thing that was inside there, we get that representation. So it's an imprint. Jesus is the imprint of the nature of God, and that's where we want to focus today. I don't know if any of you remember the novel by H.G. Wells that later became the television series in the 70s, The Invisible Man. Um, That was a great show. I vaguely remember it. But if you remember, the, uh, the main character there, in order he had been experimenting with invisibility, and the experiment had gone awry, and now he was permanently invisible. And the only way for him to be seen in uh, person form was that he had to put on this skin-like substance called dermaplex, was what, he, was what he put on, so that he could go out in public like everyone else. So if I, if I can, just a little kind of get that concept, 
Jesus is sort of, if you will, this, this skin of God's invisibleness because God is spirit. So he represented himself and came in human flesh. We say that Jesus was God wrapped in flesh. And that idea of wrapping you and this dermoplex, right? The, the mold, the image, the imprint. Not in a physical sense. Not in a physical sense because God is spirit, as Hebrews tells us here, but it is one of his nature. So... In what ways, then, does Jesus reflect or is the image of the invisible God? Well, I'm going to submit three for you. There are innumerable ones. We could spend an eternity just going over these in and of themselves, and we don't have time for that in any of these sessions. And I don't want to go too far into my first two points because they actually follow in the verses that come. And so it's places where Ken and Ad are going to go, and so I don't want to tread too far into their territory because I'm sure they'll do a much better job than I. But let's take a look at the first way in which I think Jesus is the the image of God and imprint of his nature. First is his eternalness. His eternalness. We see this as represented to us if we compare Genesis 1-1, that famous passage, In the Beginning God, that's a very, very famous passage. And then if we line that up with John 1, 1 through 3 and 14, for those of us that are Christians and have debated uh, uh, Christian sects or non-believers uh, at times who challenge this, we, we often dovetail these two passages together. And let's just read the passage out of John. Remember Genesis 1, 1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then John begins his gospel with this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We see this reflected also later in these verses, as I mentioned before, in, in the second half of this verse that we're in now, Colossians 1.15. He's referred to again as the firstborn of all creation. Not that he was born as such. The firstborn mean that he would be the inheritor in that, in that society. The firstborn always inherited everything, and so he would be the inheritor of all creation. And he is before all things, we read later in verse 17 his eternalness. And again, the great I am passages. If you recall in Exodus, when God is calling out Moses and saying, you need to go speak to the Pharaoh. You need to release my people. He's going to release my people from, from the slavery in Egypt. And he says, who should, I, who should I say sent me? And he said, I am. I am. That's God, how he referred to himself. I am. And then if we go back into John 8, 58. Turn there quickly. Excuse me. <clears throat> this is where Jesus is debating the the Jews, the Jewish 
religious leaders. And back in verse 57, the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? And Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Oh, they knew exactly what he was saying. He was taking the name of God for himself. He was representing himself as the image of God. And we read more about these great I am passages in Revelation, several places, just in chapter 1 alone, verses 8, 11, 17 through 18, and then later in 21, verse 6, and chapter 22, verse 13, all of the great I am's in reference to Jesus, the express image and nature of God. So first, I think Jesus expresses God's image or is God's image through his eternalness. And I know we'll hear more about that later as we get farther into this section in Colossians. Second, and these, are, again, are just a couple of the ones that we could go after. By his omnipotence, he represents the image and nature of God by his omnipotence. And these are things that, that God does not convey to the rest of his uh, universe. These are incommunicable attributes, we say in big, fancy theological terms. But they're his essence, his nature, the things that make God God above all other beings in the universe. We see Jesus' omnipotence represented just like God did in the Old Testament where he performed miracles, right? He showed his mastery over the gods of of Egypt and all of the miracles that he performed there, the different plagues that he administered to them. He was proving a point to them. You worship these individual gods over these things, frogs and, and what have you, and God is saying, I'm a God over all of them, and I'll prove that to you. And so he does so through miracles. Likewise, Jesus master demonstrates his mastery over his own creation. We read that, that nothing was made that was made without Christ. It was all made through him, and it's sustained by the power of his word. We're very, very familiar with the miracles of Jesus, I hope, here. Um, Raising Lazarus from the dead would be one of the more famous ones. We know of his turning the water into wine at the wedding when they had run out of wine, and he filled the water pots, and they went and dipped from them, and they had become wine. Multiplication of a few loaves and fishes on two occasions at least to be able to feed multiple thousands of people from just bare bones, basic necessities. If you talk to uh, Daniel Savage, he will tell you that, that adding that sort of material to the universe just doesn't happen in physics. It's just impossible to take that and multiply it according to the natural laws of physics that God has built into this universe. But then we're not dealing with just any natural person here. We're dealing with Jesus, the image of God. So his being able to multiply things. Walking on water. When was the last time anybody here did that? Nope, not me either. So I think that his omnipotence here. And getting at later, thirdly, (coughs) excuse me, secondly, and one that's very, very powerful, the laying down and taking up of his own life. If you recall, when Jesus was being tried for his crimes. And many times he said, you don't take my life from me. I I willingly lay it down. And I could call and angels would come and rescue me and none of this would happen. 
But it wasn't God's plan. It wasn't eternal that that would happen. But that he would, in fact, go to the cross. And then later we read throughout the New Testament that God the Father and the Holy Spirit and Jesus himself all receive credit for raising Jesus from the dead. There's linchpins there for proofs of the Trinity, if you ever want to get into that discussion with someone. They must all be one and the same to be credited with all the same work and not to be trampling on each other's toes. So Jesus' ability to lay down and raise up his own life is proof of his omnipotence. None of us here possess that power. And thirdly, his sustaining power of all creation. We read later in this same passage, Colossians 1, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, both visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And later in verse 17, And in him all things hold together. That takes a pretty powerful person to be able to hold all of creation together. As a child, I grew up singing that song, He's got the whole world in his hands. Reference to God or Jesus, He's got the whole world in his hands. And I don't know if any of you have satellite or cable TV, but on, uh, I think it was the Science Channel recently, I've started to see between shows uh, an image, an advertisement for the Science Channel that is a giant hand in this expansive space holding the earth, not touching it. Now, I don't know what they mean by that, but I get blessed every time I see that because it reminds me of our Creator and our Lord Jesus Christ. So I think Jesus is the image of God and his nature through his eternalness, through his omnipotence. But ultimately, it's through the culmination of what it was that he came to do. And I think this is the quintessential way in which Jesus is the nature, the exact imprint of the nature and the image of God. And it is through his compassion and his love for us, his creatures. Let me take you to Isaiah 55. This is a powerful, powerful passage. It's one of my favorites, along with the one in Exodus that we just had read for us, where God reveals himself to Moses. Uh, I'm reading from the the King James, so if you have a different translation, that's why. But we're reminded here from God, through the prophet Isaiah, Ho, everyone that thirsts, come to the waters, and you that have no money, come, buy, and eat. Yea, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. In verse 3, Incline your ear and come to me here and your soul shall live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you even the sure mercies of David. Verse 6 and 7, Seek the Lord while he may be found and call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him. And to our Lord God, for he will abundantly pardon. This is the image of God that Jesus represents. 
one who pardons sin and forgives iniquity. Let's go back to Exodus 33 again where we had that, that passage read for us. Actually, 34 is where I want to go. Starting in verse 6. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord. The Lord God, merciful and gracious and long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, <clears throat> excuse me, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. We'll get to the second part of that later. So we see God through his prophet Isaiah revealing his nature, one of mercy and tenderness, wanting to forgive fallen creation. Here in Exodus, when God revealed himself to Moses and told him what he was like, who he was, what his nature was regarding mankind, these are the words that God himself chose to represent himself, to reflect reflect himself. And it would be thousands of years before Christ would come in the fulfillment and the demonstration of that ultimately. We read, at least in the King James, six times in Matthew, no less than five in Mark, one in Luke, we read of Jesus being moved with compassion for people. The representation, the image of God's own nature as he revealed himself earlier. And of course, that beloved phrase and passage from John 11:35, where we're told that Jesus wept. He wept. So if we take all of this, and we take particularly Exodus 33 and Isaiah 55, and we can go to other passages as well, and we bring that all the way forward to John 3:16, perhaps the most well-known verse in all of Scripture. And Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus and what's taking place there. And he says that God loved the world so much, this is how he's demonstrating his love, that he sent me his only son to die on the cross, that whoever believes in me will not perish but have everlasting life. This is the nature and the image of God wrapped up in Christ, in human flesh, robed, in our form. And Romans 5.8 reminds us that God showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Therein is the nature of God. He loves his creation, his creatures, us, fallen human, enemies of God, shaking our fist at him from the early days of the, of the garden, perhaps. We don't know how long Adam and Eve were there in, in Solitude and and bliss with God. But from that time, from the time that they took of the, the fruit and ate, plunged us all into enemies of God, fallen nature, and God still loves us. To the extent that he wraps himself in flesh in the form of Christ and says, you will, for the people around you, demonstrate my nature. You will exactly represent me to the people around you and for the ages to come. And let's not forget that 
in the Old Testament, there were prophecies predicting the coming of this Messiah, the coming of this Jesus, this God, man, God wrapped in human flesh. The fact that some of them in Jesus' day missed it was just due to their own ignorance, their own sinful and selfish desires, what it was that they were looking for, what they thought they wanted to be freed from, political rule, and and they wanted to be self-governing. And we still do today. That's our sin nature. Some of what I told my friend Ruvam on the plane in that seat next to me. We do these things because we want to be masters of ourselves. But God loves us and demonstrated that for us by sending Christ. So, why is this important? So these are at least three ways in which I think that Christ is the image of God, the exact imprint of his nature through his eternalness, his omnipotence, and his compassion and love for his creatures, for humanity. So why is this important? This is wonderful knowledge to know. We can see it plainly from the text, I think. What does it mean to you and I? What does it mean to those who are Christians now and those of you who may not yet be Christians? Well, I think Paul helps us here again himself and later in chapter 2. I just have two points here. The first is it keeps us from being deceived about the truth of Christ. If you recall from uh, Ed's overview and outline of this, of this book, Paul was addressing a certain set of unknown heresies or false teachings that were taking place. We don't know precisely what they are because he doesn't tell us, and we don't have a lot of historical documentation. And he doesn't address the falsehoods point by point. Rather, he addresses them with truth about who Christ is. And oftentimes that is the best rebuttal of falsehood. Rather than trying to attack the falsehood, you just put forth truth. Rather than trying to explain to your child why 2 plus 2 does not equal 5, you just repeatedly show to them that 2 plus 2 equals 4. You combat error with truth. And so Paul has told them about the gloriousness of of Christ and all of this, and then goes on to chapter 2, verse 4. And Paul says, I say this, he's at least referring to chapter 1, all of chapter 1, if not more densely, verses 15 through 20, where we are. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. And later in verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world, and not according to Christ. So understanding that Jesus is the image of God, the exact representation of his nature, keeps us from being deceived about the truth of Christ and falling into lies and falsehoods that men are going to bring our way. And make no doubt about it, they do bring them our way. You probably encounter them every day in your workplace, maybe even in the grocery store or in schools, how it is that people try to lead us astray from Christ. But remembering that he is the image of God helps us not to be deceived. And secondly, and my final point, is that this is important to believers and non-believers because if we want to know God, the true God of the Bible that we say in our opening creed, 
then we must know Jesus. Absolutely and without mistake. There is just no way around this. Any other attempt to arrive at a definition of who God is or to answer this question, what is God like, must begin with Christ himself. He is our locus. He is our starting point, as we read for us. Colossians 1.19 says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In him who? In Jesus Christ. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The fullness of God did not dwell in the cloud or the pillar of fire. The fullness of God did not dwell in the, in the smoke, in the tabernacle, in the tent of meeting of Moses or in the miracles. They were representations, demonstrations that he was there. But the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ. John 1.18 No one has ever seen God. The only God who was at the Father's side, being Jesus, he has made him known. John 8.38 Christ himself says, I speak of what I have seen with my Father, and you do what you have heard from your Father. He's chastising the religious leaders of his day. But I speak of what I have seen with my Father. And from our readings today, John 14, 6 through 11, but especially verse 9, bringing us back to that. Philip said to him in verse 8, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. If we want to know God and his nature and how he loves his creatures, we need to know Christ. <clears throat> Continuing, just two more references. Here in John 6, 35 through 36, actually, and then 41 through 48, but focusing on verse 46, Jesus himself says these words again, I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them and said, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. And truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. If we want to know God, we have to begin with Christ. We must know him. And finally... John 5:17 through 20. But Jesus answered them and said, My father is working until now, and I am working. 
So this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Jesus, the image of the invisible God, the exact imprint of his nature, demonstrated for us through Christ and his eternalness and the references to being from before all creation. Reported for us by his omnipotence and his power and mastery over his own creation that he had a hand in in being a part of and creating and that is sustained by him. And ultimately, through coming in flesh and going to that cross, demonstrating the love of God to his creation, to his creatures, to us, to rebellious people, who he now is able to transfer from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light through the blood of his son Jesus Christ because he was obedient and demonstrated for us and lived out the nature of God himself through death on that cross, being an atonement for sin, an acceptable sacrifice that God is now able to say, I can forgive sin and make those of you who were my enemies my friends. Justice and grace met on that cross and make it possible for us to be one with God through his Son. Let me leave you with this one thought before we have a closing prayer and sing our doxology. Calvin said this about this passage. We must be careful not to look for him, being God, anywhere else. For apart from Christ, whatever offers itself to us in the name of God will turn out to be an idol. And so I say to you, where are you looking for God? today. If it is not in the face and the person of Jesus Christ, we're looking in the wrong direction. And that's for us Christians and those who are us, for, of us who are yet to become Christians. Look to Christ and be saved. Stand with me and before we sing the doxology, I would just like to remind you all that if you have needs or cares, if you have something you'd like prayer for, if you think you need to be reconciled to a brother or sister here and in this fellowship, or maybe even another one, if you just have something that you'd like to get off your chest and unburden yourself with and take up that command, that one of those one another's where we can come alongside each other and bear burdens, don't hesitate to turn to a neighbor in the pew, and please don't hesitate to call on any of the leadership here, Ken, Ed, Brian, or myself, or others. I'd be glad to minister to you and in those ways, as would your friends and family of God here.